the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Lord, your word tells us in Proverbs, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the knowledge of the Lord and understand the fear of God. Lord, we pray this is what happens this morning, that as we call out for insight, as we seek it, you make yourself known to us through your Son. Lord, guide us with spiritual insight to discern spiritual things and make known to us the beauties, the comforts, and the wisdom of the gospel of your Son. We ask all these things in your son's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Many of you may know that I'm a huge fan of the Lord of the Rings series and Tolkien's writings. I, I promise you I try not to quote it too much, but this morning I, I just couldn't help myself. One of the main characters in that story is the man Aragorn, who, spoiler alert, by the end of that series, he becomes king at the end of that story. The last book is literally called Return of the King, so it's not that much of a spoiler. Throughout the story though, you see his transformation. You see this transformation of a man from a lonely wanderer called Strider, hiding in corners, hunting for food, into the long lost king, Aragorn, who restores the world when evil is defeated. There is this pivotal moment in the movies and in the books where this transformation takes place the man who raised Aragorn visits him and he's carrying the sword of the king. As he calls him to step up and take the mantle of leadership, he commands him at last to put aside the ranger and become who you were born to be. That is, put away the lifestyle of wandering and hiding and take up the throne. Put down the walking stick and pick up the sword of the king. Throw off the rags of the ranger and clothe yourself in the mantle of the king. You see, for Aragorn, he had a very clear picture of who he once was and ultimately who he was called to be as king. For our purposes in Ephesians, we, we do see a similar dynamic at play. Throughout this series in Ephesians, we have been discussing not simply, you know, what is the church, but more accurately, who is the church? Who is the church called to be? You see here, for Paul, the church is not some 
inanimate object just meant to be described, but it is a living, breathing organism with distinct parts, roles, and functions, just like our own human bodies, all unified under the head, under Christ himself. And so it has an identity to itself. And so this is what our passage provokes us to ask. Who is the church called to be? What is its identity? Our passage neatly divides up into two main sections. First, we'll see the lie that we put aside and then the truth that we put on. The lie we put aside and secondly, the truth that we put on. As we'll see as we walk through that we too, both individually and corporately, are called to put aside a life of deceit and lies and become who we were born to be, to take off the rags of a wanderer and put on the robes of the king. If you haven't already, you may follow along with me in Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 19 in page 978 of your red Bibles. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. As we saw last week, Paul gets really practical at this point in the letter as he begins with a charge to not walk or to live as the Gentiles do. Quick reminder here, just some contextual things. You know, here we're talking to Ephesians, right? Ephesians were Gentiles and they live in a Gentile and pagan world. It's as if, you know, I sent a text to a student at NC State and said, you know, hey, don't live as the wolf pack do. Well, they might be thinking, well, that's, that's kind of hard. Um, it's kind of hard not to be a part of the wolf pack to, to wear red, to tailgate, to go to Carter Finley, to fall in love with all the bricks around us. It's part and parcel there to the NC State community. It's seemingly impossible to disconnect those things. But the dramatic and unbelievable point thus far in Ephesians has been that now there is a new community. Now there is a new community that stands outside of the divisions of Jew and Gentile. There's this new community of being in Christ. And these new communities are taking root in Ephesus, in Asia Minor, moving into Greece, into Asia, into Africa, and Western Asia. And they're not Jew, they're not Gentile, but they are now in Christ. They are a new category of people because they belong to a new age which has broken into this present age through Christ's resurrection. But this new community is still a, a tiny minority, right? The world they inhabit is still very much so pagan or Gentile, and it's gonna be tough sledding to go against the air that they breathe every day. And the way of life in the Gentile world, as we'll see, isn't pretty. It's helpful to clarify before we get too far into the particulars that Paul is, is mostly generalizing here. Um, not all pagans or polytheists were or are as depraved as Paul describes here, but what Paul does want to show us is that there is a, just as there is a typical Christian life, there is also a typical Gentile or pagan life. Paul is trying to describe here a particular mindset or disposition that details the direction that every life is facing when it is out of touch with God. He's also unpacking the kind of life which will be reproduced in a community that is not defined and dictated by the body of Christ. 
For example, Paul begins by saying that they walk in the futility of their minds. It's an interesting little phrase. Futility is, is one way to translate a tricky Greek word, but it's the same word that the Greek translation of the book of Ecclesiastes has for the word vanity. If you've ever studied that book, you know that refrain in that book, vanity of vanities, all of life is vanity. And if you've ever studied it, it's, you may know it's a pretty depressing depiction of life under the sun, a life defined by vanity where it's meaninglessness or emptiness is that it can also be translated. A life under the sun is an exercise in futility or emptiness, purposelessness. The horizon of one's life is only that which that can be experienced right in front of them. Therefore, it is, it is transitory. It doesn't have purpose. It's like trying to grasp for vapor. It's elusive and it's exhausting. And thus de- de- begins this downward path to destruction. If one has such a mindset or disposition to life, there follows a, a darkened understanding. A shadow blinds unbelievers of being able to comprehend spiritual matters. They literally can't see clearly, and therefore they aren't able to discern life from death, and they become alienated from the life of God, as our text says. The language that Paul uses It seems a little harsh as we move forward, but it's accurate given this context. He describes them as, beginning in verse 18, as ignorant. Not that they are stupid or something, but they they literally don't know better. They don't know. And he says they are are hard-hearted. That is, they have this spiritual insensitivity. Such a disposition of vanity and meaninglessness produces a repetition of wrong choices that leads to a spiritual hardening where one's consciousness becomes ineffective at curbing or redirecting from sin. And thus they now become callous is the language Paul uses. Or literally, this word means dead to feeling. Paul's point here is that a hard heart produces a hard life. A hard heart can't distinguish between good and evil, and so someone can't discern discern anymore what's destroying them. It's as if they have a a limb that's numb, and they don't realize they have a deep cut, and they are bleeding out. And so they give themselves up to sensuality. That is, they abandon all restraints. The guardrails are gone. The fish has jumped out of the fishbowl, only to realize its demise. The safari tourist has jumped out of the jeep only to be eaten by a lion. And perhaps Paul ends most tragically by saying they were greedy to do this. Greedy to do this. Not greedy in the sense that they just wanted more money, but that they are greedy for more and more of this lifestyle. There is this lust for more. One translation reads that they wanted more and more. Recently, Netflix released a documentary on the 2012 Heisman Award winner, Johnny Manziel, or or Johnny Football, as some of you may know him. Manziel had the the dream college experience. Small town guy, goes to a big school, wins all the awards, and becomes the, the platonic ideal for the big man on campus. The documentary describes how he had everything. Girls, money, success on a scale like college sports has hardly ever seen before, but he couldn't stop and his life went out of control, and his career flopped when he reached the pros. He says in the documentary after he was drafted, he says, I had every single thing that I could have ever wanted, and when I got everything that I wanted, I think I was the most empty that I've ever felt inside. Paul's point here has not been to detail how bad the Gentile, pagan, or unbeliever world is, 
but it has been to show that this way of life isn't sustainable. It's a wandering life. It can't hold water when it's presented with the realities of a broken world. A friend of mine describes this as trying to eat soup with a fork. Yeah, you're getting a little bit of life, but it's not substantive. This approach to life blinds us and it hardens us. It is ultimately, as Paul will say soon, a lie. It is a lie. It is a life that only works within the economy of deceit, within a worldview of delusion, and it preys on your vulnerable affections to find life and love in all the wrong places. But this bleak picture is meant to be a foil toward another way of living. It's meant to provide us a sharp contrast between the lie that we put aside and our second point, the truth that we put on the truth that we put on, which is what we look at now, turning to our text in verse 20. Paul tells us, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness, and holiness. Paul is, is masterful at setting up these foils, these sharp contrasts, and the force of them hits home for the reader. If you belong to Christ, if you are in Christ, you do not belong to these lies anymore. Such a life does not characterize you. Over against the darkness of a vain, futile, and empty mindset, Paul uses three parallel expressions centered on three verbs which reframe a Christian's thinking. We see that here in verse 19, that you learned Christ. Moving into verse 20, that you heard him. And lastly, that you were taught in him. The language here evokes the image of a a school or a classroom and refers to some sort of consistent instruction that you've had where the truth of Christ and the gospel has been taught here. And just a reminder, we've, we've seen this time and time again in Ephesians, that the you here is plural. It's a, it's a y'all, if you will. It's a, it's a plural you rather than a singular. For Paul, there is no such thing as a private, individualized faith or an individualistic pursuit of self-discovery. Yes, faith is a, is a personal thing. It has to be a personal decision, but it is never private. The Bible knows nothing of a private faith. The Bible knows nothing of a private salvation. The Bible knows nothing of a, that's just between me and Jesus faith. That's quite simply not a category in the Bible. And as we see from our text, the Christian life, it's a, it's a community project of learning how to educate our longings, of turning away from those longings that destroyed us and turn towards longings that give us life. We do this because we are, as verse 25 tells us, we are members of one another. We're not just individuals or ourselves. Our identity in Christ is members of one another. An African saying puts it this way, I am because we are. I am because we are. Which if I could just make a quick aside, this is why we plug so hard things like community groups, wow, men's dinners, youth group, and just a consistent pursuit of a depth of biblical community. Not because that's just what a good church member should do, or you may think, yeah, I mean, in an ideal world, I would do that, but I got a lot of work to do. I got kids now, I got things going on every night. We got got practice to run to. We'll come back to those things when, when things settle down. 
But Paul speaks as if a Christian community of, of consistently doing life together is more than just some secondary or tertiary concern. It is primary because it is essential to this process of learning Christ, of putting off the old self and being renewed, of having our minds renewed in Christ. This can only happen in community amongst the plural community of the body of Christ which is what we see next as Paul then walks through three commands for this community. Verse 22, we see to put off the old self. Verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And verse 24, to put on the new self. Put off, be renewed, put on. It's the pattern for the Christian life. He says here, to put off your old self according to your former manner of life. Literally, this phrase means to put off the old man. Greek here, the old anthropos, the old human. This old man is described as your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. It's corrupt through that lie that tells us that these things. This translation almost makes it seem though as if the text is saying that Paul is saying that your former manner of life, it was corrupt and you should put aside all that nonsense, which it is saying that. But there's a, a deeper message I think being communicated here if Christians have quite literally become a new person, then they have changed identities. They have been freed from that lie of sin and its control over their lives. The old self is not simply a corrupt entity, but the word here, it's, it's a present ongoing verb. It's as if it is being corrupt through its own deceitful desires. That is, as you put off the old self, it begins to corrupt itself. It eats itself alive because of its own lies, because of its own deceit, as you continue to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. The old self then is not just a corrupt entity, but it is a doomed entity. And in the life of the believer, it finds itself only subject to destruction. We then are called to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. The verb for to put off and to put on are, are in the past tense. They have happened when you learned Christ. But this verb is in the present tense. It is ongoing, which communicates for the Christian there is an ongoing nature to this action of being renewed. Christians must continually allow for God to transform their thinking in the innermost recesses of who they are. It is a daily, continual decision of inward renewal to turn away from things that destroy and turn towards things that bring life. Paul's last command is to put on the new self. Literally, again, to put on the new man. We remind ourselves of the question that we asked at the beginning of this message. Who is the church called to be? Who is the church called to be? And I think this is something I often misunderstood before I became a Christian. You know, growing up in the Bible Belt, there can be such a moralistic culture of expectation. You know, in my mind, being a good Christian meant doing all the right things not going to parties, not yelling back at your parents, voting the right way, getting into the right school, and being ultimately the good kid, right? That's what being a Christian meant. But my mindset totally changed when I realized that becoming a Christian means being something before doing something. Becoming a Christian means being something before doing something, and this is the way Paul sets up his argument as well. As we'll see next week, Paul gets really, really practical with how you should speak, how you should choose to do your work, and our daily attitudes towards others. But before Paul gets there, he has to clarify this basic truth of the gospel. When we put on the new man, 
When we put on Jesus, we put off the rags of the wanderer and we put on the robes of the king. We put on ourselves what we could never do ourselves. We put on a righteousness that is not our own. We put on the power of a man who has reversed the effects of our fallen nature. And so that image of God, which we are all made in, the fullness of our humanity can now be restored. We are in Christ before we do anything and that totally reshapes our identity. It totally reshapes everything that we do. I had the chance a few years ago to spend a summer in Thailand with the college ministry that I worked for. You may know that Thailand is a culture dominated by Buddhism. About 93% there is Buddhist and a little over 1% Christian. But just about every student that I met or spoke to was raised Buddhist and had little to no understanding of Christianity or Jesus. Some students had, had never even heard of his name. While we were there, we came to meet a college student named Earth. Thais have interesting English names. That's a story for another time compared to their Thai names. But this guy's name was Earth and he's, he's given me permission to share this story. At the beginning of that summer, Earth had very little understanding of Christianity and the Bible. But slowly, we got to know him, began to read the Bible with him, and walking through passages like this, showing him the grace offered through the gospel and the new life found in Christ. One day, while another team member was meeting with Earth, we got a text saying that Earth became a Christian. It was an absolutely awesome text to receive, obviously. It was an amazing experience and something that really is incredible to see in a culture like Thailand. Something I will never forget, though, is the next day I checked Facebook and I saw a post from Earth. Except this time, Earth had changed his Facebook name from Earth to New Earth. He was a new creation. A new story began that day. You see, what Earth came to realize is something that I hope you all can point to at some point in your life, of Jesus' work of, of new creation, of putting on the new man when we place our faith in him and make him Lord of our lives. That there was a time when I tried so hard to find life through the things of the world and I wanted more and more of it. But now something has happened. Something has changed. The things of this world are growing strangely dim. I am no longer what I was. I'm no longer enslaved to that wandering. And the only word I can use to describe what has happened to me is that word, new. I am a new earth, I am a new trip, I am a new Brian, I'm a new John, I'm a new Mary, I'm a new Luis, I'm a new Jaden, I'm a new Nicole. The gospel shouts that believers are no longer prisoners to what they once were. For some of you, this has happened, and I hope this is a reminder that warms your heart to recall to mind the Lord's work in your life, of that friend in college who was bold enough to share the gospel with you, of that conversation you had in lunch that day that changed your life, of that parent that you had that loved you and read the Bible with you. For some of you, this has happened, but the cares of the world surround you again. You need to hear that you are not your job, you are not your debt, you are not your divorce, you are not your diagnosis, you are not alone, you are a new creation, defined and marked by the life of the new man. But some of you, for some of you, this hasn't happened. My plea to you would be something like that plea at the beginning of this message. Put aside the ranger and become who you were born to be. Put aside a life defined by the things that you do and become like someone who has lived the life you could never live, died the death you were condemned to die, 
because he loves you. Put aside the life of wanting more and more and become like a man who says he is gentle and lowly of heart and find rest for your souls. Put aside the frat boy and put on Jesus, a man who doesn't live to be served, but he serves and he gives his life as a ransom for many. Middle and high schoolers, put aside a life that tells you that life is about proving yourself to your friends by the schools that you can get into, by the boyfriend or girlfriend that you can have. Put aside the narrative that says life is about defining yourself and remember who you are in Christ. Put aside a life defined by the rush and fear of finding that significant other before it's too late and run to the Father who waits for you, who sees you and runs after you and embraces you. Put aside the old man, put aside the lie, become who you were born to be in Christ. You are made in the image of God and though that image in us has been fractured by our sin, now that image has been restored by the new man, the man without sin. Humanity is now able to be restored to that image by a new representative the new man, Christ himself. We are now able to be what we were made to be all along, in his image, in Christ. Not defined by lies, but by truth, by righteousness and holiness. Put aside the rags of a wanderer and put on the robes of the king. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this new life offered through your son. Lord, we're so grateful for what he's done. Um, Lord, these words are imperfect to communicate what you've done in my life, what you've done in the life of my friends, what you've done in the life of the people in this room. Help us continually, daily, pursuing community, pursuing your word, put on the new man, put off the old man, and the things of this world grow strangely dim as we do so. Lord, we love you, we're so grateful for the gift of your word and your spirit that works within us. And we ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.